I could have two compelling thoughts today. I could begin by being thoroughly intimidated that I haven't prepared as much as I choose to. But I choose to think something different today. I choose to think scores of you right this moment are praying for me. Just one of you, the message I have for you today ultimately is one that God spoke to me. It's not just a teaching. It's not just something for you guys. It's something God gave to me. And so I'm just pulling back the curtains a little bit. If you hear a lot of pronouns that are personal pronouns saying me and my instead of you, it's because I'm teaching myself almost every day now. It's not about what they need to hear. It's about what I need to hear. I don't know about you, but when Hannah was singing the America the Beautiful, my heart just begins to beat. I love being in America. I love our freedoms. There's no other place on earth that I would choose to live but in America. All around the world, people long to come to America. There's so much we can celebrate today, not only giving God praise and thanksgiving for this country and what he has given to us, but for all of those who have paid an ultimate price that we could be free. But there's another story about America. Not quite as bright and not quite as hopeful, but concerning, heavy. We talk about this message of hooked and there's so much of that metaphor that we relate to because we want to become fishers of men. We want to reach out into the world of those people who were lost and hook them and bring them in. We identify with that. But you know somebody else who is fishing? Our enemy, Satan, is fishing too. He's hooking us in any way he can, and he wants to take away our freedom. Oh, maybe not focused on our social freedoms and freedoms to work and go where we want to, but he wants to hook us in other ways. Through drug and alcohol addictions, sexual addictions, addictions with food, these kinds of enslavements are very easy to observe. But he wants to hook us in a hundred other ways that aren't so obvious. He wants to reach into our minds and capture us. And he wants to enslave us through self-righteousness. He wants to enslave us in ways that we sometimes are not even aware of. His favorite tools are leading us down the pathway of blindness or in denial. His strategy is focused. Steal to kill, and to destroy. And he wants to do that by enslaving us. Opening this message, I would like to turn to the book of Job as an opening illustration, but before I do that, I just want to make something very clear because in a moment, we're going to be making some statements about Job. 
that haven't always been part of my vernacular when I relate to Job. I want you to know that I admire him. I hold Job in the highest of regard. This man, as far as we know, this story takes place long before Abraham and the law and so many other things. It's a very early story. I've admired his strength. I have longed to immolate those things in Job's life that I so admire. But life change came to me. When I saw God using the darkness in Job's life to confront him with a glaring weakness, a weakness that was enslaving him, and he didn't even know it was there. Why is it life-changing? Because God spoke to me similarly. And God showed me a picture of his grace that I had no comprehension, that I was desperately in need of. You see, we are in a war. It's a war not fought with bombs and missiles and soldiers attacking us, but it's a war in our mind. It's a place where Satan is trying to capture our thoughts, trying to send us down the pathway and to enslave us in a thousand different ways. I want to thank the technical ministry who last moment put together some slides for me. And the first slide I'd like to show with you, it's kind of a theme that God has brought to me. And it's a little bit of an, of an enhancement of what we're talking about today. We're talking about the weapons of warfare that, that God has given to us. 2 Corinthians chapter 10, 3 and 5, if you would like to follow your scripture, I think they're on the screen. For though we live in the world, we do not wage war as the world does. The weapons we fight with are weapons of the, not weapons of the world. On the contrary, they have divine power to demolish strongholds. We demolish arguments and every pretension that sets itself up against the knowledge of God. We take captive every thought to the obedience of Christ. Whatever else you hear me saying today... I am not talking about positive thinking. I am not talking about behavioral modification. I am talking about letting the truth of God in our hearts and to ponder the truth of our hearts and to be transformed by that word of truth deep inside of us, stamping out those lies and partial truths that Satan uses against us. Before I get into some more of that, again, go back to our friend Job. I would like to suggest to you that Job had two body blows of monumental importance. And his response to those, I have admired my entire Christian life, and I saw in him towering strengths that I long my entire life to immolate. As you well know, Job and his friends had exactly the same theology. And the theology was this, that if you honor God, you live well, you obey him, you will be blessed, and you will be prosperous. But when things didn't turn out well, 
and things turn to darkness, both of those groups, Job and his friends, they applied their theology differently because they both believed if you did right and obeyed God, he would bless you. And when Job began to reflect being cursed, Job's friends concluded, well, God is good. Job has to be wrong. Job has to be in sin. When Job looked at the situation, he too believed that a life would be blessed if you obey God. And since it wasn't working out that way, and since he knew he didn't do anything wrong, then God had to be unjust. The torment back and forth was really about their theology. Well, the first body blow came to Job, as you well know. All of his wealth disappeared in a flesh. All of his children were taken from him. I can't imagine the grief that came pouring in in Job's life. I can't imagine how an avalanche of pain, an indescribable hurt would come in a flesh. This was Job's response. At this, Job tore his robe shaved his head, he fell to the ground and worshipped and said, naked I came from my mother's womb, naked I will depart. The Lord gave and the Lord has taken away. May the name of the Lord be praised. In all of this, Job did not sin. Oh, I admire this about Job. I admire the strength of him. I see him as a person who grieved And he grieved well. He faced his pain head on. He worshiped God. He didn't accuse God. He didn't throw stones at God. He he worshiped him. He submitted to the Lord. The Lord gives. The Lord takes away. And he praised the name of the Lord. Interesting, before this all happened, Satan and the Lord have this interaction. And the Lord kind of taunts Satan a little bit. Have you considered my, my man Job? There's none better than him on all the earth. Of all the people in the whole earth, that's God's evaluation of Job. There's none better than him. After body blow number one, Satan had, had the, had the I, I want to just kind of parenthetically say that Satan is not intimidated by our goodness or our good qualities. It didn't intimidate Satan, and he didn't roll up and quit because God had made the assessment there was none better than Job. Instead, Satan took it as a personal challenge. We're going after him. Which kind of reminds me that we're always a target of our enemy. Well, body below number one comes. Job excels in such ways, and and, and the Lord again taunts Satan a little bit. Have Have you considered my person Job? You incited me, and you took away all of these things from him, and yet he is not sinned, and yet he is still the best there is in all of the earth. You think Satan got discouraged? Do you think he began to wring his hands and give up? 
no, let me take his health. Then he'll curse you. Then comes body blow number two. Body blow number two comes and Job's health fails. He has these boils from the top of his head to the bottom of his feet. They're itching. They're about ready to drive him crazy. He's taking a, a, a piece of potter and scratching them. He's covered himself with ashes. He's the most pitiful person you can imagine. He's lost his family. He's lost his wealth. And now he has lost his health. And perhaps what I feel to be one of the most painful verses in all of Scripture because I know how much I, I'm influenced by the positive words of my wife. His wife comes out. Why don't you just curse God and die? I can't imagine processing that pain. And yet, here's how Job responds. His wife said to him, Are you still maintaining your integrity? Curse God and die. He replied, You are talking foolish, woman. Shall we accept good from God and not trouble? In all of this, Job did not sin in what he said. He submitted to God's authority. He did not speak against God. And therein is where I have admired Job my entire Christian life. I want to be that guy. Some part of me wishes the story ended there. Victorious. A towering saint. An example for everyone to follow. It gets no better than that. There's a reason why God said he was the best in all the earth. He's a towering giant of the faith. But as God began to spoke, speak to me in my own journey and show me my own brokenness of all the people, God led me back to this man that I have admired my entire Christian life and he showed me another part of the story. Chapter 3. The two body blows happen in chapter 1 and chapter 2. Chapter 2 ends with Job completely confident. I'm not sure how much time went from chapter 2 to chapter 3. I don't know if it was a hour, a day, a month, or a year. I have no perspective of that. All I know is that chapter 3 opens up and Job curses the day he was born. He wished he would never have been born. The darkness that came on Job's life, the pain that began to settle in, he wished he wouldn't have even survived. Satan is not going to stop with our successes. I can tell you 
as far as I can observe in Scripture, he hardly misses a beat. If he attacks us with one arrow and it doesn't work, he does not give up. He goes back to his resources and tries something else. One of his well-worn tools in our culture is to remain hidden. He doesn't want us to be aware of his methods. He wants us to assume that this is all about us and all about our choices. He would just assume we'd not be aware of how much he is working in the background. Chapter 3 and onward. Of all the things that he could use to attack Job, can you believe it? He takes his theology and turns it against him. Ultimately, it's Job's theology, his view of God, his understanding of God that he has embraced his whole life. That is the very thing Job uses to bring the greatest pain to Job. His theology was simple. Obey God, serve him, live in integrity, and your life will be blessed. That wasn't working out that way. Job didn't feel blessed. He lost his wealth. He lost his family. He was in complete, utter pain. His friends had turned against him. Even his wife had turned against him. And as he sits there in that hash heap day after day, thinking of his anguish, suddenly he begins to reflect on his theology in his mind over and over. Satan begins to use that theology against him. And he comes to the conclusion that God is not fair. And at the peak of it, in some of Job's lowest moments, he lifts his hands to God, declares that he is righteous and God is unfair. God, why don't you just come down to earth and in a court of law, let me plead my case. You plead your case and we'll see who is right. It, it, it takes my breath away that Job speaks that way. But in his mind, day after day, Satan is pelting him and beating him with his theology, bringing him to the conclusion that this isn't fair and God is unjust. And suddenly this towering saint of all ages begins to feel God is not only helping him, but indeed God is out to destroy him. God has become enemy number one. He doesn't have a chance. He declares the omnipotence of God. What chance do I have when an omnipotent God turns his attacks on me? And Job's anguish turns to hopelessness. Job lost hope. You know, as long as we have hope... We can endure almost anything. Psalm 23, yea, though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death. As long as we think we're going to get through it, I think we can endure almost anything. 
but sitting in that ash heap, filled with pain, disappointed in God, feeling like the Almighty had turned against him, and he was pushing down, and there was no hope. There was no surviving when you think an omnipotent God has turned himself against you. Job became hopeless. He didn't think he was going to get through. And he began to despair. I make this observation of saint, and it's just a little four-point thing that I, uh, I believe in my heart is true. It's this crafty Satan, his battle plan. He wants to take away our hope. If he can take away our hope, we quit trying if he can take away our hope, we fall into despair and we give up. We quit trying. He doesn't want us to have hope. Because if we have hope, we can endure almost anything. Because we have hope. He ultimately wants to snuff out our hope. I am 100% convinced that right now, some people in the sound of my voice, whether you're in this building, whether you're in 909, or whether you're from home, some of you are struggling right now. Is there hope? Is there hope? If Satan is battering you day after day with hardships, and darkness, and pain, to where you feel like God is even against you, and if he has taken away your hope, just put it in your mind. That's Satan. Because one thing in the last year and a half, if I, if I have been on a new journey, I have come to the inescapable conclusion of the absolute certainty. Any message of hopelessness is not from God. Even in the darkest moments, even in the darkest moments, God is at work. I remember what it was like to be a prodigal, just like the prodigal son, when that prodigal hits the darkest moment of his life. All of his friends have deserted him. He's, he's eating, he's competing with pigs to eat food. And, and in his darkest moment, when you think there is no hope, guess when God shows on the scene? He tells the prodigal, I have a better plan for you. For those of us with addictions and compulsive behavior, when we face relapse after relapse in the darkest moment, when we're tempted to think there is no way out, it's in that moment that God can show up and show us a different path forward. I am 100% convinced that God works in the darkness. And most recently in this towering giant of Job, God showed me that in his darkness, he showed Job something of which he had no awareness. And we'll get to that in just a moment. Number two, Satan will use our theology against us. I don't have time to develop this for I think there's some other things we want to hit today, but I can tell you that he is 
not shy at all about using our theology against us. You heard how he used it against Job. He uses it against us. Sometimes the things and concepts that we embrace that sound so good on paper and maybe ultimately they even represent generally truth. He'll twist it. He's not shy about quoting scripture. He'll use any means possible to enslave us, to take away our hope. He'll use our theology against us. He'll use people around us. Job's best friends, even his wife of all people, he inspired with the most painful comments to try and take away his hope. Ultimately, Satan makes it personal. He's after us. We should not have the illusion, whether we are a towering giant of the faith or whether we are not yet sure whether we're stepping into this, this uh, religion or not or something in between. He is after us. He wants us. He wants to enslave us. He wants to take away our freedom in Christ. The next scripture I have on the screen, which I'd like to turn your attention to, is the real issue in Job's life. <laughs> oh, I wish I had the ability to understand what I'm about to tell you, but at best... I can only see the results of it. I can't even begin to understand the why. Shouldn't there have been some easier way? This towering giant of the faith, this guy that I have admired and immolated my entire Christian life as I saw him take body blow number one and body blow number two, and I have so much wanted to incorporate that in my life. Of all things, all the pain, all the darkness. We come to chapter 32. Job's friends have exhausted every argument. They were silent. We hear nothing more from Job's friends. But chapter 32. So these three men stopped answering Job because he was righteous in his own eyes. Righteousness is God's evaluation of us. Self-righteousness is the evaluation of ourselves. Sometimes, we're asked to do self-evaluations in the context of work. I hate self-evaluations. How's your devotional life on a 1 to 10? I wish I could hear those questions humorously, but all I can think of, well, what's a 1 and what's a 10? I want to know what the standard is. I have a near nervous breakdown trying to decide between 7 and 8. or eight. I, I don't know what the standard is. You go into the hospital, what's your pain level? One to five. I don't know what one is, I don't know what five is. Give me some standard. 
I was deeply impacted by a book as God began to stir in me a new message. As he began to show me something different about himself, just like Job, perhaps a little, with a little less pain, but he had to break me before he could show me the path to ultimate freedom. One of the tools he used was Brent Hansen's book, The Truth About Us. In that book is based on the theme that we all think we are better than we are. He quotes a researcher from the University of London that submitted that a majority of people believe themselves to be morally superior to other people. Most people believe themselves to be just, moral, and yet regard the average person less so. 93% of us believe that we are a better driver than the average. <laughs> Parenthetically, my observation, when it comes to husbands and wives, it's 99% <laughs> of the spouses believe they are better drivers. We also think we are smarter than the average person. We also believe that we are more friendly than the average person. In case you think we have an ego problem, good news. We believe we are humbler than the average person. <laughs> Some years ago when I was pursuing my MBA, I was in a finance class, and the professor, the first day of class, required us to write about a moral situation in the context of our work. We did that. We came back to the next class period, and he says, congratulations. 100% of you did exactly the same thing that 100% of every student I have ever given this question to in my entire teaching career has done. You gave a moral situation in which you were morally superior to those that you were working with. The, old, the point of the story is figures don't lie, but liars figure. There's lots of moral perceptions in something even as objective as, as finance. Seeing the truth for what it is, seeing ourselves for what we are, is not always easy. You might wonder about people in prisons, murderers, thieves, and the like. They were given the same question, and guess what? They believe they are more moral than the average person. The point of all this is we are easily under the delusion that we are better than we think we are. That self-righteousness, it's our standard. It's our measurement, like Job. His measurement, I am right, you are wrong. Come on down here, God, and let's decide between us. He had decided what he thought was right. And he thought God was not measuring up. He 
you know, we tend to evaluate things based on our own evaluation. If you exercise less than me, you probably are undisciplined. If you exercise more than me, you're probably obsessive. So what's the right amount of exercise? Well, of course, it's how much I do. The goal of what I'm talking about here today is I'd like to lighten all of our loads. I'd like us to get off of thinking that somehow freedom is found by our own standards and in our own strength and in our own goodness, no matter how good that may be by what we measure. But I would like to lighten the load for us to focus ultimately on how good God is and how he frees us. I wish we had time to talk more about this scripture that I want to share with you, but if you allow me just to really just refer to it. I'm going to have it on the screen. It's from the book of Luke, chapter 18. And if I could just tell you a little bit rather than reading it, Jesus has two people before him. One is a Pharisee, a religious leader, well-trained, high education and all things spiritual and the other is the lowest of all levels a tax collector the one Pharisee says words that in another context I have said to myself more times than I could count I thank you that I am not like other people. Now that may sound odd. It may sound like the epitome of arrogance, and it is. But the context, I would say that, I thought was good theology. I thought was helpful. It was in the context of gratitude. Even though it's many years ago now, I am forever and always will be impacted by my years as a prodigal. One of my most reoccurring prayers, heartfelt, deep and passionate, I thank you, Lord. I am not that guy. I thank you, Lord. I am not like some of my very closest friends who right now are under the ravages of addiction of alcohol or drugs or marriages falling apart because of a sexual addiction. My gratitude was heartfelt. It pointed me toward God. I did indeed feel gratitude and thankfulness that I'm not like those people. But the lesson of this verse that comes flooding on my heart like a, like a tidal wave, like a tsunami, 
When Jesus hears this story, he simply draws a conclusion. One went away righteous, the other did not. And that's when I realized on some level, although there's certainly room for gratitude and although I certainly want to feel gratitude, I am thoroughly, completely missing the mark when I'm focused on, I thank you I'm not like those people. Like Job, it took brokenness for me to see something else. It, saw, it took brokenness for me to see God in the way he wanted me to see him. Our time is passing rather quickly, and so if you let me kind of skip through to bring to a concluding thought. The Lord began to use Job's darkness to teach him a life lesson. And ultimately, Job learns a lesson from his darkness and from his pain that has impacted me far more than all of that towering goodness I saw in his life. It is his brokenness that I now most identify with. And more than anything else, I want to emulate what he found that God uses a series of rhetorical questions and comments to grab his attention. The Lord spoke to Job out of the storm. Are you going through a hard time? Are you in the middle of some darkness? Do you find yourself in the middle of brokenness? Give thanks to God. Because just maybe... You're at a place that you can hear like you can't hear when you think you're on the mountaintop. The Lord asked these questions. Who is it that obscures my plans without knowledge? Where were you when I laid the foundations of the world that somehow you understand how it all comes together? Oh, surely you were born already and have all this experience. Who is the one that contends with the Almighty to correct him? <laughs> Would you discredit my justice, condemn me? Who has a claim against me that I might pay? Because I own everything. Job's falls, silent. I am unworthy. I cannot reply to you. I put my hand over my mouth. I will say no more. I know you can do all things. No purpose of yours can be thwarted. Then the two verses I want to close with and have on the screen. You asked, who is this that obscures my plans without knowledge? Surely... I spoke of things I did not understand. My ears have heard you, but now my eyes have seen you. Therefore, I defies, despise myself. I repent in sackcloth and ashes. These days, anybody who knows me knows 
that deep in my heart is what I'm about to tell you. Because it has been life transforming for me. Some other time, some other context, it's a long story if you want to hear it. I'd love to tell you about it. Secretly, deep in my heart, below any understanding or knowledge that I had, I believed that ultimately God was my worst critic. No matter how hard I worked, no matter what I did, it wasn't quite good enough. That's an exhausting way to live. It does not live, lead to freedom. I live in the land of free, but I was bound. I was bound by this concept that no matter what I did, it wasn't good enough. I could always have done better. Transformation came. When I realized the words of Jesus were for me, when he said, God sent his son not in the world to condemn him, but that the world might be saved through him. And suddenly it burst on my heart, God is not my worst critic, he is my best cheerleader. And when I understood the grace of God, it set me free. I don't just live in the land of the free. I am free. The chains have fallen off. The shackles are gone. And no, I am not what I yet need to be. And I am not done pursuing being what God wants me to be. I certainly have my ups and downs like a roller coaster on occasions. But thank God, I am free and I am filled with hope. And that is a message that is not just for me, but for you. The team is going to close singing about my Redeemer. Please do not hear this in theological terms as though it's some kind of spiritual thing, this thing of redemption. And for a moment, don't even think about it in terms of those lost guys who are out there far from God. For this moment, in this time, in this place, our Redeemer lives for you and for me. He wants to redeem us.